0: Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by Dr. Sachin Panda who is really one of the leading researchers in a very important topic about your health that many of us really don't know enough about to optimize our health and that is the circadian rhythm and he's written a book recently that was published in the summer of 2018 called The Circadian Code, and it's really a great read and, w- and written at a level that is easy to understand and has lots of good, solid information there. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Panda.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, and you, I think we can start with the way you got into this because it's interesting. Obviously, you're from India yeah, and uh, like many people in India, which I think it kind of vies for, I think China is probably a little bigger country, but it's definitely one of the biggest countries in the world. And agriculture is big over there. So I think that was your initial thing because you grew up in a rural village with your grandfather and uh, started doing that. And then you then you progressed into molecular biology. So why don't, you, why don't you tell us about that journey
1: and how you got to the United States? Well, um, as you pointed out, I was exposed to agriculture pretty early on in my life. My grandfather had a a farm and during summertime, I would go there and mingle with my cousins and see how they lived their life. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because the village did not have electricity and whole day everybody was out in the backyard, the children were playing or doing some chores and then the adults were working in the field. And it was two or three square meals and everything would sit down around sunset. We would have our dinner and then there was very little light uh, at night. And I used to get uh, my best sleep during the summertime. I didn't know whether it was too much activity outdoor or um, it was more quiet, quieter at night, Uh, but that really intrigued me. And then the journey kind of continued. I went to an Aggie school and in Aggie School, I realized that uh, different plants uh, flower at certain time of the day. And what is interesting—it's not in the book actually—is um, I did very well in Aggie School. And people who do well in Aggie School in those days—they okay. used to excuse me for saying—it's Aggie School, agricultural school, agricultural school. Yeah, okay, sorry, in agricultural school, and they used to go to become a plant breeder or plant geneticist or. Many of them went to banking. And I realized that <laughs> Yeah, if you're really good and want to make a lot of money, go into banking. <laughs> yeah. Or you you if you're into academics, then you do um, plant breeder. And then I realized, well, if I were to become a plant breeder, then I had to work on rice and rice flowers at 4 a.m. in the morning. Mm. And that means I had to wake up very early and go to the field around three o'clock and do some pollination and all that stuff. That did not attract me. I thought, well, too bad, rice flowers at 4 a.m. I'm not working on <laughs> becoming a plant breeder, so I moved on. But it was curious to see why rice flowers at 4 a.m. and why certain plants flower at certain time. And then. Uh, few years later when i was thinking about grad school i realized that there is so much thing about biology of time the whole every biological system depends on time just like throughout the day we have a clear timetable when we should be doing this and that and meeting people having conversation having dinner every organism has that and we haven't learned the biology of time and that's why i got excited about circadian rhythms because this is a universal timing system, starting from pond to humans, elephants, every organism has to go through this 24 hours timing schedule. And if this is disrupted, then plants will flower at the wrong time, um, animals will not reproduce well, and in humans, lots of different diseases can happen. So that's why I got excited about Circadian rhythms and got into yeah, and where my are you now?
0: What university?
1: So now I'm at the Salk Institute. It's a nonprofit yeah. research organization, mm-hmm. and it's in San Diego, California. Okay. great. So,
0: and I think you. Well, I, I want to get into the uh, the exciting components of the genes, the clock yeah. genes, with and yeah. uh, the circadian genes that are each and as I understand, are in each and every one of our cells, and the, this the discovery of those genes. i don't know the i forget the researcher we did an article on it but he was awarded the or maybe it was a team of individuals awarded the nobel prize last year yeah and i think i think you're a research team that was in contention for that too weren't you with the clock yeah
1: no i don't i won't bring myself up to that level because you know those are really the pioneer um, Mm -hmm. early in 1970 71 when no one was believing oh, okay. in circadian rhythm, that's when they started, and that's the year I was born, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so all right, but you were doing research in that area. Before yes, this award yes. So, um, yeah, so there's uh, three, uh, Michael Rosspass Mike Young, and um, forgetting on the last one. <laughs> um, they all was, got the Nobel, right? They, they all got the Nobel, and they really did the um, foundational research. Um, long time ago. Yeah,
0: and uh, it's true that these genes are p- pretty much in every one of our cells, right? These circadian genes that control everything. And if that's true, and then and if you could tell or at least describe succinctly how that's all orchestrated, because it does seem <laughs> to be a massive mess to, to coordinate that.
1: Yeah, so that's the very... Um interesting part of circadian rhythm and at the same time you got to recognize that this field is unlike any other field of biomedical research where every other field is trying to cure a disease or study an organ system whereas circadian rhythm is all about timing so there is no primer even to how to study this so the bottom line is almost every cell in our body has its own clock and in every cell the clock it regulates a different set of genes when to turn on and turn up. And as a result, what happens is almost every hormone in our body, every brain chemical, every digestive juice, every organ that you can think of, its core function rises and falls at a certain time of the day. And these are, again, coordinated. For example, your growth hormone might rise in the middle of the night, in the middle of our sleep. And at the same time, if there is not enough food, if there is not food in our stomach, then the stomach lining will start to repair. And for that repair to work perfectly, the growth hormone from the brain has to coincide with the stomach repair time. So in that way, different rhythms in different parts of our body have to work together for the entire body to work optimally. So in fact, uh, to have these daily rhythms in sleep-wake cycle, being more alert in the morning, having the bowel movement at the right time, being more, uh, having better muscle tone in the afternoon, etc. These rhythms are the fountain of health. That's the yes. indication of health.
0: Yeah, and to try to micromanage that would be arrogantly foolish, <laughs> it would seem. And that, as you discuss in your book, it's just really paying attention to ancient traditions that our body has that we can honor, and by doing this, it sort of takes care of itself. It all goes back to normal. And is, is that correct?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's almost like just think about um, going to school. In mm-hmm. a school, say there are six or seven different periods. A uh, lot of different things are taught. the The best thing, the first thing one has to show, one has to do to learn anything at school is to show up at the right time. Mm-hmm. And similarly, to leverage these daily rhythms that are so ingrained in our body, we just have to do a few things, sleep at the right time and eat at the right time and get a little bit of light, bright light during the daytime. So that's the foundation that we can do very simple things to reap the benefits of this circadian rhythm and the wisdom of our body.
0: Okay. And I think that when most people hear circadian rhythm, they think about the most common anomaly with that, which is shift work. Yeah. And prior to reading your book, I really was somewhat clueless. I thought it was a relatively small minority of the population (laughs) that engaged in this activity, but I was shocked. Well, first of all, let's define it in your book. You define it as anyone who works, uh, has them, work requires them to stay awake for at least three hours between 10 a.m., ten p.m. and 5 a.m. for more than 50 days a year, yeah. basically once, a week. once and, a week. Yeah, and then there's this professor, you uh, acknowledged Professor Ronenberg and a researcher in Munich surveyed 50,000 people and found that the majority of, and actually by the first definition, that's 25% of the population. Unbelievable, of the non-military workforce.
1: It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, It's one in four people. One in four, just imagine every firefighter, every police officer, first responder, even these days, half of um, your Uber driver, taxi drivers, Mm -hmm. yes, and not safe.
0: I I frequently have to take, uh, I use Lyft instead of Uber, but I frequently have to take one when I'm traveling, you know, to catch a flight. And I just, I, 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 I'm glad they're there, but I really hate doing that to their biology <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> i mean you can do a simple experiment whenever you are checking into a hotel you are taking a, a lift you just ask the driver what time did you wake up what time are you are planning to go to bed yes yes and you'll see that easily not one in four you'll see one in three or one in two might have uh, been big going through this disruption around us and we don't even think about it yeah so that's that's the cool thing that we have been living with these 24-hour rhythms for last 150 or 200,000 years, mm-hmm. and we are just waking up to the foundational impact of these 24-hour rhythms on our health.
0: Well, we technologically have not had the ability, yeah, the capacity to violate these ancient circadian rhythms until like the last 100 years because of the cost. I mean, you there obviously we had fire yeah for a long time but when you're going to have lamps and have oil to burn that fire it became a very expensive proposition to yeah. maintain light at night and even then the light wasn't that great so maybe you yeah. can expand on that uh because that's pr- i mean it's just the last hundred years when the electricity came into being into yeah that's oil. the
1: yeah that's the inflection point maybe 100 120 years ago yeah, yeah late
0: 1880s yeah, 1980s. yeah.
1: So even in 1850, for example, even though people had access to lamp oil Mm -hmm. uh, for an average family living in England, where we have much more data, it would take almost uh, one week earning for this average family to light up their homes for three to four hours, all the rooms for three to four hours every night. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge amount of money.
0: And is it what, one week's earning per year or
1: no every month like one every week month so 25%
0: of their income would have to be devoted to pay yep. for oil to to make them make it light at night which to is obviously to night.
1: light up to light up all the rooms okay so wow. that's the caveat but now so that's why people are not actually lighting up all the room like the way we do now mm-hmm. and uh, right now we spend less than 1% of power. And in fact, in some cases, maybe 0.1% of power. Yeah, I'm probably power. closer to 0.1. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to just light up. I'm not talking about heating and cooling and other stuff. Just yeah, lighting yeah, yeah, is yeah, less yeah, than light. 0.1%. Yeah. Well,
0: and what's helped that quite dramatically is the uh, introduction of energy efficient lighting, which is this yeah. pulsing LED and fluorescence. Unfortunately, the pulsing definitely uses electroelectricity, but it produces... Uh, dirty electricity artifacts high voltage transients in addition to producing typically very poor quality light and wrong mm-hmm. spectrum but yeah. that can be compensated or even with that but it, it can't compensate for those the dirty electricity that they introduce
1: yeah
0: so uh, but uh it's a mess so not only do you, have to, do you have to deal with the circadian rhythm aberration but then you have these other artifacts which make it make it even worse <laughs>
1: well this is this is interesting only in the last 16 years we have come to understand the impact of light on our health because really? before this, we thought that lighting is only for vision and mm-hmm. our eyes just have rod and cone cells to guide us throughout the world and 16 years ago uh, myself and two other labs co-discovered this blue light sensing light receptor called melanopsin mm-hmm. And these light sensing cells in the retina, there are only five thousand of them. They are hardwired to the is, that, is that per eye. Per eye, only five thousand per eye. To, total ten thousand per human. Mm-hmm. They're really hardwired to many parts of the brain, and including the master clock in the hypothalamus and also the pineal gland that makes. Um, indirect projection to indirect connection to pineal gland that makes melatonin and many other brain regions. So that discovery completely changed how we look at light Mm. because it's not only lighting for safety or security, we have to now think about lighting for health. Mm. And when it comes to lighting for health, it's not only any lighting, we have to now think about blue light. And again, we have another challenge. It's not that we should get rid of blue light completely. We need more blue light during the daytime, and we need less at least three to four hours before going to bed. So the bottom line is in the last 100, 150 years, we have created the man-made world without paying attention to circadian rhythms. And now we have the excellent opportunity to recreate, rebuild this entire world uh, that will optimize our health. So that's,
0: yeah. So how much damage do you think we've done from a health perspective, from violating the this, this basic cycle that we I, I de, I need to optimize our health? I mean, because there's definitely a price to pay. And what do you think that price is?
1: Well, so the price, uh, we cannot uh, directly put what is the price, but we can go through say literature and then mm-hmm. see one simple thing if you disrupt circadian rhythm for a week or two what happens Mm -hmm. and if you go through chronic disruption just like shift workers Mm -hmm. or people who have that kind of lifestyle then what happens so um starting from babies all the way to 100 year old we know that a few nights of staying awake for three to four hours or even eating at the wrong time can cause irritation foggy brain um Mild anxiety, loss of productivity, and insomnia. At the same time, this can flare up some of the underlying autoimmune disease. So, then if it continues for several weeks, months, or years, then we can look at, say, shift work workers or people in controlled clinical study. So, when we make the list of disease, that are contributed by circadian rhythm disruption, there's a huge list. It goes from depression, anxiety, bipolar disease, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, PTSD. These are the mental health issues. And then obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease. They affect more than 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> probably close to eighty <laughs> percent. No, each one. Oh, okay. percent. Okay. And then you bring in uh, gastrointestinal disease, so irritable bowel syndrome, IBD, and even acid reflux, heartburn, ulcerative colitis. So if you combine all of these, then we can see clearly why nearly one third of all adults in the U.S. have one or more of this chronic disease. Mm-hmm. More than two thirds of adults at the age of 45 have some of this chronic disease, and nine out of 10 at the age of 65 have two or more of these chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. So, now the question is how much of this is due to circadian rhythm disruption and other factors, or maybe circadian rhythm disruption with underlying genetic cause? We cannot put a clear figure, but it's very clear that. If we optimize circadian rhythm, we can really move the needle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the circadian researchers from, and I forget her name, but she was at the University of Chicago, and I'm sure you remember, Margaret or something?
1: Yeah, so um, it'll come back to me. (laughs) Yeah, but
0: she was a pioneer in this field, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, after reviewing her work and, and putting yeah. uh, putting articles out on it, uh, it was very clear that if you slept less than six hours a night, less yeah. than six hours, which yeah. used to be, I believe, less than one percent of the population, and now it's like thirty yeah. percent, uh, that you radically increase insulin resistance, which is at the core of most of those diseases that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and yeah. And, I, and you know, some uh, researchers believe that it's. It exists in 80% of the population, I believe, yeah. a large percentage that may be related to violating circadian rhythms.
1: Yeah, actually, that's uh, Ev Van Carter. Margaret Sanger, isn't it? Sanger? Yeah. No, Ev uh, Van um, see see okay. published the f- first paper in 80s. 80s, okay. That's what yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and I think it was a JAMA or Lancet uh, yeah, or yeah. New England Journal of Medicine, one of those. And um, she had actually done, made two or three very key observations in her research. Um, one is uh, our daily, there is a daily rhythm in insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. For example, if you give me a insulin toler- glucose tolerance test in the morning, I may be healthy, but in the evening, if you do the same test, then I may come out to be pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. And they used to call this as evening diabetes. You can diagnose a person diabetic in the evening, but in the morning, he or she may be normal. Second thing, uh, relating to sleep deprivation, she published that result, and then subsequently people have done controlled clinical study where healthy individuals are brought into lab and are given sleep deprivation. They sleep five or less number of hours per night, or they're given a simulated shift work. And within four days, only within four days you can see um, deterioration of insulin tolerance and glucose intolerance so that's really eye-opening because a lot of us we go through that kind of disruption in a monthly or weekly basis Mm -hmm. and shift workers go through that half of their life Mm -hmm. and that might explain the rise in glucose intolerance and having 85 million pre-diabetic in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just great. And as I said, it's just shocking for me to find out that it's really one in four to one in five people in the in, in the developed world that are shift workers by that definition of working between, at least three hours between 10 a.m. and or 10 p.m. and
1: 5 a.m. 50 yeah. days a week, uh, 50 days yeah. a year, sorry. 50 days a year, yeah. Fair so year. that's the international labor organization definition and many European countries have that definition. Yeah, it's crazy. So that means even anyone with a newborn baby, a new mother is also going through a lifestyle that's very similar to shift work. And that might partly explain uh, some of the conditions, for example, postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and many other issues, even with new moms. Yeah,
0: yeah that, is, that is a very good point. But you would think, since obviously we've been doing that since however long humans have been around, and you know, you know, everyone has their own view on that, but obviously it has to be since then. So you would think we'd be optimized for the continuation of species to compensate for that challenge that Mother Nature has provided nursing mothers or recently recent mothers with the capacity to tolerate that circadian rhythm abuse.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, there is some change in last hundred years. And, yes. Yes. Yeah, that, and, yeah. That's a good
0: point because
1: it, they got
0: the electric lights in there, which messed
1: up. <laughs> so. No, the biggest change. Uh, yes, that's one uh, big change, And in terms of reproductive is and other stuff, there that, are that also changes. For example, in 1910, the life expectancy at the time of birth used to be 45 years <laughs> in the, in the u.s so both yeah, you and yeah, that's right. pretty
0: shocking to you. thank you for reminding me of that because it's not obvious you know you kind of think it's been, maybe it was 60. 45 years 100 years 45,
1: 100 years gosh
0: ago. nearly doubled
1: it in a yeah. century that's crazy so, yeah so we doubled it and yeah. we don't even think about it yeah but imagine yeah. we so mother nature had optimized everything for most of us like 90 percent mm-hmm. of us to live up to the age of 45. yeah yeah <laughs> and now no, we're living
0: is that 45 year age uh, skewed because there was a high infant mortality? So in other words, there were so many infants yeah. dying that that made, there are many people in their 60s, 70s, 80s back then, but they it got obscured because of the infant deaths.
1: So one in one in 10 used to live up to the age of uh, 90, but now okay. one in four will live up to the age of 90. Okay. Um, so in that way, if you look at the uh, time of first child or uh, those, those numbers have also changed. And we know that as we get older, um, our circadian rhythm also begins to deteriorate mm-hmm. after our thirties and forties. So what uh, there are two things happening. First is we have disrupted circadian rhythm and we have also delayed productive decision to later in the age, later in our life. So those might be doing more harm. <laughs> we okay. are not optimized for that.
0: Well, let's get back to melanopsin because I think that's another important one. And i had forgotten that you were really one of the key researchers to to, yeah. th- to discover that. Uh, I'm particularly curious. Uh, you mentioned that there's five thousand cell of melanopsin cells in each eye. Yeah. Uh, so we're born with this, and these these cells stay from the time of birth to the time we pass. And you did, there's no way to reproduce them. I mean, to uh, in case you damage some.
1: Uh, so, we haven't seen any uh, neurogenesis of melanopsin cells so far. Really? Uh, but these are very resilient cells. And in fact, uh, people who have glaucoma, uh, they're a great subject for learning more about melanopsin. And so, there are some reports that um, melanopsin cells may be resistant to um, cell death in glaucoma. So, glaucoma is a disease that kills most of the ganglion cells in our retina mm-hmm. and melanopsin is just one type of ganglion mm. cell. Okay. So people are curious whether these cells are different from other ganglion cells. And glaucoma is a disease where people are looking more closely. One problem is unlike looking at rods and cones, uh, there are a lot of technological advances. We can look at them non-invasively. But there is not really any technology to specifically look at melanopsin cells non-invasively in an aging adult. And, and the only thing we can do right now is post-mortem analysis to see whether the cells are there and whether they are as sensitive. We don't even know whether they are as light sensitive as they were at the time of birth. So that's a very new emerging area particularly how the melanopsin cells age and whether their function remains the same or they deteriorate and what we can do to correct it.
0: Okay, so is melanopsin the uh, cell responsible for d- producing the signals for the production of melatonin? Uh, no, they
1: are not the same cells that produce melatonin. Okay,
0: so how, how does the melatonin signal work? Is that obviously Goes up to um, the pineal gland, which produces it.
1: Yeah. So the melanopsin cells, they send their axons to different part of the brain, and then there is an indirect connection from melanopsin cells to uh, the pineal gland that produces melatonin. Mm -hmm. You might wonder how come both of them begin with the word melan. Right. (laughs) Right. right. Melanopsin. Uh, It goes back to their discovery. Uh, This is where basic science research really leads the way because both melatonin and melanopsin were actually discovered in the melanosome, or the pigmented cells of frog skin. Mm. So when frogs are put outside in sunlight, then melanopsin senses the bright light and signals through melatonin to change the tone of frog skin so they pigments disperse and then the skin becomes more darker. That's how the name came. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that this connection between melanopsin and melatonin to respond to light is still present in human, but in a different form. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So,
0: you know, melatonin is a very important part of the equation to optimizing your circadian rhythm yeah. or maybe a, a sort of a target of the are a consequence of violating your circadian rhythm. So yeah. uh, it's so, so important too. And in, in, in your book, you talk about a six-year-old produces one-half to one-third the melatonin of a 10-year-old. And I would venture to say that the vast majority of people viewing this on our site are over 60 years old. So that's an important number, one-half to one-third. So what can these individuals, me included, do to optimize their melatonin production?
1: Yeah, so there are um, multiple... Um discussion points here. One is, um, is the reduced melatonin because of many sleep disorders that we see as we get older. And in fact, uh, there are a lot of people who do take uh, over-the-counter melatonin or now various types of melatonin receptor agonists sold as various medications to improve their sleep. And uh, this seems to work for many people, but at the same time, um we must advise people that they figure out how sensitive they are to melatonin some people are pretty happy with one milligram of melatonin and some might mean need up to five milligrams um, the other thing that most of us can do is to control our lighting because in the evening we are exposed to a lot of bright light I means just imagine 150 years ago uh, the firelight or the lamp light, or even the full moon light, was only one to five lux. Full moon light is maximum one lux. Mm. And now we have 50 to 100, and sometimes in some of the department stores, it can go to 600 to 700 lux of light in the evening. Mm. And that's tremendously high amount of light that will just slam your melatonin down to almost zero.
0: Well, what about you know what continually amazes me, and and I rarely am on the road that time, but sometimes when I travel I am, is the the
1: headlights from cars.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How many lux are those?
1: Yeah, those are becoming brighter and brighter with the LED light. Yeah. Now, even the traffic lights, you may have noticed a few years ago when many cities, they changed the traffic lights from old style to LED. Mm-hmm. The traffic lights became brighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, many, now many street lights are brighter. So there is a huge amount of light pollution, not only for... Our wildlife, even for us, there is a lot of light pollution that's going on. And if we can be careful, mindful about light, mm-hmm. sometimes at home, at least where we have complete control, uh, we can dim down light instead of having light switches. I think one should have dimmer switches throughout the house. And then, a, there
0: is a problem with dimmer switches, though, because d- yeah. a dimmer switch is not recommended for most building biologists because they will invariably introduce dirty electricity's high voltage transit into the circuit which is going to have other negative biological consequences so mm-hmm. you know you can just get the right type, style bulb rather than turning yeah, those yeah. down and yeah. you know, anyway a lot of leds that people are using now aren't going to work an incandescent would work but not an led some, yeah. some leds can, but not
1: most yeah. don't yeah and then uh, now there are quite a few companies that are also selling blue filtering eyeglasses, but uh, make sure that you don't wear them during daytime. (laughs) Yeah. Let's
0: talk. Yeah. It's crazy to do that. I mean, unless, unless you're in, at least as my exception, you're in a lecture hall where there's no natural light. Yeah. And there's just this terrible blue light only, uh, from the LEDs or the fluorescence. Do you think that, that exposure with not, none of the balancing near infrared, do you think that exposure during the daytime is harmful? From a, from a circadian rhythm perspective.
1: Well, we haven't actually looked at that carefully because, uh, one is short-term and then the long-term exposure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is where, uh, there's not much, uh, research going on. Although there is a lot of research needs mm-hmm. because of heterogeneous nature of the, our human environment, for example, mm-hmm. our kids, mm-hmm. they go to school. Now they live, they're staying almost the entire day in dimly lit mm-hmm. classrooms. With projectors that are showing what they have to learn, so whole day they're just in dimly light lit classroom. Or even worse, looking at their tablet
0: or computer
1: screen all day long. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, it's like part of the curriculum in many schools. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so as I said, it's it boils down to one thing: we didn't know about lighting, and now that we are learning so much about light. Happened only 16 years ago, and people Mm -hmm. really started looking at it maybe 10 years ago more seriously into humans. Mm -hmm. We have a long way to go, but at the same time, I'm happy that uh, there are uh, yeah, there are a lot of progress in terms of setting guidelines Mm -hmm. uh, for building builders, for even uh, lighting designers, architects, um, all of them to start to think about these issues and incorporate that into design. And what's your best guess as to the greater
0: danger uh, after sunset when you really need to restrict these blue light frequencies? That depends, of course, on where you're at, unless you're really far north or far south <laughs> <laughs> of the equator, uh, then then it becomes a little bit ludicrous, and I'm not sure that's too healthy to live in those <laughs> latitudes. But, uh, is it the intensity of the light, you know, the, this 100, 500 lumen light, or is it the color frequency? So if you filter out like all the blues and you have like a red light, like you're blocking everything, you're only seeing red and white, does the intensity of the light matter, matter in that area? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so it's a function of both uh, light intensity and s- spectral quality or light yes. color. Yeah. And um, the good thing is, yes, when you are going to that orange to red spectrum, mm-hmm. then there is less harm because it's very less effi- less effective in reducing melatonin. So as people wear those eyeglasses or change the lighting to that spectrum, then what's likely to happen is the melatonin level, natural body melatonin level may begin to rise earlier and they will fall sleepy, they will fall asleep much earlier than being exposed to electrical lighting that's not filtered out.
0: You know, and it's, I know that, and it's integrated into my lifestyle, but you know, when people complain about trouble falling asleep, it it relative, it doesn't, it's not the first thing that pops into my mind to mention to filter the blue light, because the assumption is that everyone knows what I know, that you just shouldn't be looking at blue light after sunset. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but that's not true. It's probably a very small percentage, way less than 5% of the population who understand or apply this.
1: Yeah, a very small percentage of people who actually know it or understand it and apply it. And also not everybody knows what type of Mm-hmm. blue filtering glasses to use because now there is anything and everything that claims to be blue filtering. Even I, the other day I saw some glasses that filter out only 430 nanometer to 450 nanometer and they claim this is blue filtering. Yes, in some way it is blue filtering, but it's not filtering out the blue light that activates mel- melanopsin and reduces melatonin.
0: Yeah. What, so, what, it, what, what, where do you think you have to put the cutoff of how many nanometers?
1: So I think it's uh, so. uh, There are some studies coming out showing somewhere between four sixty and four ninety is the most effective for reducing melatonin. So it's if you're filtering everything above five hundred, you should be okay. Yeah, if you are having only below five hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good evening. That's
0: actually yeah yeah of course because that's actually doesn't really impair your vision much at all you put on the red filters and boy you can hardly see anything your visual acuity goes to heck in a handbasket yeah that is that is good to know i wasn't aware of that but would you say that a simple way because many people aren't going to have the the technical capacity to measure those wavelengths would you say a simple way would just find a blue light you know which can be an led and a lot of the uh indicators for your yeah equipment You know I've got them on my uh, clocks not my clocks uh, my timing circuits yeah. So there's blue lights there when they're on and, and it's put the glass in front of it and if that light disappears is blocking would you say yeah. that's a
1: good yeah. one yeah that's a good one that's okay. perfect. it doesn't cost anything said to find a blue uh, light
0: yeah because <laughs> so I've purchased a few of these you know glasses that claim to block the light you need to look at them and you can see the blue light is clear as day yeah <laughs> yeah so it's not <laughs> working.
1: Yeah. So that's yeah. why I said that there are a lot of different brands, different um, blue light blockers, but not everything is created equal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that, that's pretty good. So that's yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Now yeah. the other thing that, that really contributes to this is that the eating, and you've done a lot of work in this and you really want yeah. to focus on that because that's where you really have made some really good advances. And it's, it's such a profoundly important concept. It's not so much, well, it, It's not so much what you eat, as Dr. Gundry would say, it's what you don't eat. But then beyond that, it's the timing of your food that's so important. So why why don't you help us understand that a bit? Because I think it has profound implications on your health.
1: Yeah, so the timing, just like um, the simple way to look at it is, just like your brain needs some downtime to sleep, and we do that and we know that's very essential. Similarly, almost every organ in our body Need some downtime your stomach needs some downtime liver muscle fat everything and it's not just uh, eight hours of sleeping will do uh, many of these organs actually need somewhere between 12 to 16 hours of downtime minimum 12 hours of no food so that uh, they can they can repair themselves and this another simple way to think about it is uh, just think about your stomach lining whole day we are eating a lot of different food they have to be digested observed there's a lot of damage done to the stomach lining throughout the day and it needs to be repaired it needs to be repaired every night and just like you cannot repair a highway when the traffic is still flowing you cannot completely repair your gut if you are just keep on eating um, into the rest time so that's why What we have done in the laboratory condition where we can control everything, we take a group of mice born to the same mother in the same room with the same gut microbiome, everything same uh, same weight. We divide them into two groups. One group gets the diet, uh, typical American diet, um, (laughs) high-fat, high-sucrose diet whenever they want to eat so they will eat throughout day and night and the second group gets the same number of calories from the same diet every day and they are allowed to eat somewhere between 8 to 12 hours In some experiments we have done 8 hours 9 hours 10 11 12. sometimes we did up to 15 hours but the 15 hours doesn't work so when these mice are eating and this what we call time-restricted eating, where timing is restricted, calorie is not restricted. And let me just hold,
0: hold you there for a moment because I, I think that's an important point. It's a minor point, but because there's a lot of different names for this intermittent fasting would be, and even the literature is time-restricted feeding. But, it, but I like the t- term TRE or time-restricted eating. Is that your favorite term?
1: Yeah. So right. that's uh, so we we, we use time restricted feeding for animals because we can, can. Oh, okay. That's the difference. Okay. So, time-restricted eating for humans. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Humans. Uh, yeah. We are not <laughs> going to be feeding a lot. So. <laughs> right. And that, but these mice are on time restricted feeding for uh, 8, 10, or twelve hours. Then. Although they're eating the same number of calories from the same food, they're completely protected from obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, systemic inflammation, high cholesterol, a lot of different diseases. And more importantly, now we, if we take fat mice and then put them on time-restricted eating at 9 to 10 hours, eating or even t- 8 hours sometimes, then we can reverse many of these diseases. And that's the surprising fact because Right now, even there is no single medication that can treat a mouse to cure its obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, fatty liver disease, all at the same time. Mm -hmm. But this one trick can reverse that all in mice. And that's the most exciting, most profound result I have seen in the last 20 years of my uh, research, of course, melatonin, melatonin is still yeah, number one. That's my baby, yeah. and uh, and then now uh, we have been doing this research in humans, and uh, many different stuff uh, have come out of it, and what we are finding is almost uh, many chronic diseases can be uh, the severity can be lessened and sometimes can be reversed by this concept of time restricted eating.
0: Yeah. And it's it's so impressive and to me the most significant proof of the fact that a calorie is not a calorie because these studies that you refer to with the rats, and I suspect that there's probably clinical trials going on now, also, that you give the people the same amount of calories, same food, identical food, but just change the timing and you have these dramatic differences.
1: Yeah. So because because of the quality of
0: food, it's identical food.
1: Yeah. So that's why I say timing can make a healthy food junk. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's a good point it's a very good point yeah so so let me just talk about the window of eating the time restricted eating because there's a bit of I would really love to hear your your feedback on this because I've interviewed Walter Longo who's in your area of the world and of course one of the leading researchers in intermittent fasting published hundreds of studies on this yeah and his personal belief and he wrote the book the Longevity, I think, I'm not sure. Longevity
1: diet. Yeah, yeah,
0: longevity diet. That's what I was, I was missing a word on it. So, um, and his contention was, he and he based it on historical observations, that it really shouldn't be as small as possible. Like he he really believed it's harmful if you go down to the, produce that window down to four hours. But it seems like the research is suggesting six or eight years. So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if you think there's any damage in reducing it to smaller, like Stephen Gundry, who I've interviewed uh, a few times, actually practices most of the year where he's only eating in a two-hour window. So do you think there's any danger of re- radically reducing that too much? Or do you think it should be cycle, like maybe three or four days a week, if you're eating within a 12-hour period and another another four days or five days, you're yeah. eating in a six to eight hour window? Or, What's the so, optimum? What's your, what's, but, if you could design a system that's ideal biologically, what would it be?
1: Well, so the way I look at it is this. Uh, we have to be in bed for eight hours. Mm-hmm. And, at and least. At least eight hours. Yeah, okay. Give your body
0: the opportunity to sleep for eight hours, maybe even
1: nine. Yeah, opportunity to sleep for eight hours. And during those eight hours, we are not waking up in our REM sleep and eating. So mm-hmm. OK, so eight hours or nine hours, no food. And then it's also a common sense not to eat within two hours before going to bed because your stomach... Well, I don't know if it's common sense, but it, 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 at, it... At least the scientific, uh, there is so enough Absolutely, from the scientific, company, yeah. From yeah. The scientific yeah. Yeah. perspective. Many people yes. don't do don't Yeah. intuitively at all. Yeah, so now now you got nine plus two hours, uh, mm-hmm. 11 hours you are not eating. And then right after you wake up, your cortisol level is beginning to rise, and then your melatonin is still high. It's taking some time to fall off. Give yourself one hour to balance these hormones mm-hmm. before you start putting anything in your mouth. So that brings 11 plus 1, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we can agree that one should not eat for 12 hours. At least, at minimum. At a bare, least, least, bare minimum. So there benefits
0: to going beyond that
1: yeah, though yeah so now when
0: it, most if you just do 12 hours, don't you wouldn't you agree that that's not sufficient enough to get the benefits to, that you're talking about in the in the observation of the mice studies
1: yeah, so at at twelve um, you just maintain your health. you are not going yeah. to uh, you are not going to reverse some of the disease you may not be able to reverse. Of course, if someone was eating sixteen, seventeen hours went back to twelve, he yeah, may it's reverse be, some of the things sure, sure. Uh, so now, Uh, The question is how short one can go. And this is where uh, there is some limitation in doing control studies like we do in animals where we can do this for a long period of time. Because if you reduce access to food for less than six hours in many animals, they will reduce their caloric intake. Mm. So then we cannot figure out whether the benefit or harm we are seeing Ah. is due to to reduction in calorie or reduction in timing. Mm. So there is a barrier that we cannot do this experiment in a very controlled study to see its long-term effect. That's a very good point. But isn't that the same barrier that exists in humans? So in humans, yeah, so in humans, the same thing. If you reduce the time window, yes, some people will reduce their calorie. And uh, some of the old studies have shown, and when I say old studies, these are 70s and 80s and, and study. Uh, they found that a small proportion of women only it's not significant in men who self-reported that they ate for eight hours of shorter duration eight or ten hours I, I don't remember i think it's eight or ten something like that uh then they a very small number of them out of hundreds of them maybe tens of them reported having gallstone or gall sludge 10 years later hmm. And that's the paper people usually refer to when they say. But at the same time, the same study, these women, uh, when they're asked whether they were dieting, the term dieting, uh, then women who were dieting, they actually had much higher risk of gallstone. So Mm -hmm. now, if you fast forward and then see control study done in 80s and 90s, what they have found is, particularly this is found among women, Who try to lose a lot of weight within very short period of time, whether by doing reducing calorie, doing anything else, they might uh, develop increased bile acid, uh, bile crystal formation. So it has to be rapid weight loss. That's the common denominator. Mm -hmm. So, so what we think is if somebody is trying to do all the good things in the world by eating a small (laughs) caloric restriction time restriction, doing a lot of exercise, then at the same time, we don't have hydration level because in these 80s, 70s and 80s studies, we don't know how much water they were drinking to dilute the bile acids that they were secreting. Then I think if all of these get together, little hydration, less window of time when you're eating, and you have also reduced calories, And you are spending a lot of uh, energy in exercise to reduce rapidly a lot of weight, that might be harmful to your body. (laughs) Okay. So if
0: if you're not in, don't have all those uh, criteria, (laughs) dieting and being overweight and not, but assuming the person is healthy, yeah, uh, you know, as healthy as can be, typically. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, they're eating really good food and they're not, you know, they, what, what would be the ideal window? or, And do you think that that window should be cycled, which is another important variable here because there's so many components of our biology that you just can't do. It. Like, you can't do ketogenic diet continuously. I, I believe no. it's going to harm you. So yeah. you have to cycle it. So, would this time restricted eating fall into the same concern? If you do it continuously for too long, is that going be problematic?
1: No, I think the way one, the way I look at it is, as we discussed, 12 hours time restricted eating is something that is a basic. Yeah, everybody should do. It's like brushing your teeth every day. Yeah, There's no our movement. You know, you got <laughs> yeah. Breathing. You can, yeah, breathing. Yeah, breathing. So this is, this is in that category. 12 yeah. hours eating, and yeah. uh, what is surprising is only 10% of the population eat for 12 hours or shorter. No, you there. You have got to be kidding. No, we, we did the study. 10%, so that's a- 10%? Yeah. 10%? That is crazy. No, only 10% consistently is- eat within 12 hours.
0: Oh, my
1: gosh. So, that is just beyond shocking. When I said 12, it's like a big shock for a lot of people because they think, oh, my God, I cannot eat within 12. Because <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: gosh. <laughs> So, so, you know, it, once you get into this, as you well know, because I'm sure you, you, these are some of your daily patterns too. There's not a hunger issue once you, no, once you're in, you don't have the insulin resistance, there is no hunger. It's yeah. just like you do fine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. So that's what happens. So okay, so twelve. But do, you, 12. I mean, do So
0: do you think it is there benefit? I mean, because inter, intermittent fasting, I think provides a lot of yeah. metabolic benefits. So, but do you think there should be cycling to the intermittent fasting? So, so that's what I say. Hours.
1: Yeah, so that's why I say that once in a while, uh, just like uh, brushing your teeth, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you have to go to dentist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once in six months or a year. Yeah, so yeah. that is your eight hour eating, maybe for a month or so in a, in a year, or uh, depending on what conditions okay. you have, you can so, go down so to So
0: you're, you're more aligned with uh, Dr. Uh, Longo's approach, not really extending it too long. So, yeah. you know, because he was more than a 12, 14 hour range of time-restricted, oh, yeah, because yeah. he didn't really like anything longer. He thought it was problematic because from his perspective, there was no historical precedence for cultures that did that
1: regularly. And, well, and I think
0: that's that's an interesting argument and, and yeah. certainly...
1: Now, for example, there is there are a lot of people who do. So in India, there is a religion called Jainism, And uh, this the strict practitioners of this religion, they don't eat after sunset. And they mm-hmm. have been doing it for centuries, and mm-hmm. uh, there is no serious health issue that distinguishes them from other people. So, yeah, uh, there are precedents for people doing this kind of practice for generations now, and centuries. I, I, you know,
0: considering the integration of the time-restricted eating and the circadian rhythm, I think it's yeah. a very valuable practice. Is one that I pretty much do all the time. I typically. Last in the middle of the winter when sunset is a lot earlier, but I, even then I still eat before sunset. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something I follow all the time, unless, you know, I'm occasionally yeah. traveling and yeah. know, there's some social <laughs> interactions, but that's, that's not common. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to take think- it. We're going to go back to this because I know you've got some special projects and some apps and the people watching this can participate in that. But yes. I had a specific question because NAD, one of the most important metabolic coenzymes yeah. for a redox balance in your body and energy metabolism, uh, is uh, generated through a salvage pathway, about 95% of it, through an yeah. enzyme. And the rate limiting enzyme is NAMPT. Yeah. Which appears to be under circadian control, and and I've read the papers, and I'm still as confused as heck. So is it is it you know with the chicken or the egg? Is it the circadian rhythm that gets disrupted that causes NAMPT impairment, or is it the NAP NAMPT that helps set the circadian rhythm?
1: So it's, uh, it goes both ways because the NAD also affects our twins and then sort of twins yes, are integrated right. with, uh, with circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. And NAD, NADH ratio or NADP-NADPH ratio mm-hmm. also affects how clock and beam all these two transcription factors bind to DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bottom line that we have seen with circadian rhythm is if the clock regulates something, Mm-hmm. then there is a reciprocal feedback regulation from that output into the clock. And that's the best way you can create a homeostatic system. Uh, so uh, it's always the chicken and egg story.
0: Right. <laughs> I, I still, it's still, yeah. it's still, so <laughs> obviously if you, so your, your belief is that if you're honoring these, doing all these uh, approaches that we described here and more extensively in your book, that you're going to optimize any deep production because you're optimizing your circadian rhythm.
1: Yeah, okay. you you will optimize multiple different health aspects. Okay, yeah. aside from NAD, which is really
0: Yeah, important. yeah, okay. yeah. All right, so let's tangent back to the time-restricted eating and the research that you're doing on that. You've, you've designed a very clever app that you can put on your phone. I think it's for, is it on uh, Android too? I yes, think it is. it's on yeah. both,
1: both Android And, and the name and of your science. app is My Circadian Rhythm, or? My circadian clock.
0: My circadian clock.
1: Sorry, sorry. Yeah. So people have to go to the website first, and uh, yeah, and download the app. information, and then do the informed consent, and then
0: yeah. And it's really app. elegant. I encourage everyone here watching to do this if you're interested, because it's going to help you out. There's no charge for it, and you're going to contribute to the research. So why don't you talk about the app, what it does, and what the intention of your research is?
1: Yeah, so the intention of the so that's how we figured out that less than 10% of the people eat for 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, did, and you published this, right? Yeah, it's published in 2015 in cell metabolism. Um, so the first study that was done was the previous version of the app where people had to log their food by taking a picture. So it and the previous version was very simple. Open your app one click, then take a picture, second click, and press save third click and it used to save the picture in our server Mm -hmm. and we mostly were interested in timing and we asked people to self-monitor themselves for two weeks because we know that our, our weekday weekends might be different and we just want to get a broader picture of what is your lifestyle from one day to another and then after two weeks uh, people can self-select whether they want to eat all their food within 10 hours 12 hours eight hours whatever you, you are free to do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. uh, the reason being we want to see uh, if we have large number of people tens of thousands of people then in every bucket we'll have some large number of people doing 10 hours eight hours even six hours or 12 hours and over a long period of time we can figure out what is good or bad for people and in this new app uh, you can log your food Um, it also has other um, other bells and whistles you can uh, the phone can be paired with your my fitness sorry uh, your google health or apple health kit so it can extract your step counts sleep etc you're also welcome to enter your own sleep Uh, every morning it can ask you how was your sleep quality because most of the wearables don't record? What is your subjective? How did you really feel? How was mm-hmm. your sleep? Mm-hmm. And once we are collecting this information, after 12 weeks, uh, we also want you to enter your body weight. And if you are a quantified self-fanatic and you have been collecting a lot of other health data, then it's good to enter that. And uh, that's how it will help to to figure out an epidemiological level in real life situation, Hmm. what is our uh, habit and how we can change it. The same app is being used in many control clinical studies. There are nearly 10 different studies going on in different parts of the world that use the same app with the slightly modified version to do all these studies. So in that way, we can benefit from control study as well as this large open to all kind of studies.
0: So do you have the option in your app to import data from others, like uh, the aura Ring, which generates some yeah. pretty significant, so you do? You can import the Aura Ring data?
1: Yeah, so what happens is any variable that that puts data into um, HealthKit mm-hmm. or Google Fit, mm-hmm. uh, once that is shared with HealthKit or Google Fit, then we can capture the data from the same basket.
0: OK, so uh, you got to put it into Google Fit and then export it from there.
1: Yeah, so uh, even when you wear the Aura Ring, it asks you, do you want to put the data into Google Fit or healthcare? And if you said yes, then one time, then we can capture the data. And the reason why we're doing this study in this way, where anybody can download, if you think carefully, almost every drug, every lifestyle, anything that the biomedical research community has tested, those have been tested maybe in 20 or 40 different medical school or biomedical research center in the US or anywhere in the world. And people who participated in those studies lived within 20 to 40 miles maximum. Those who had time and those who were had the incentive and did this. But vast majority of us, we live away from those research centers. And vast majority of us don't have the time or the incentive to go participate in those studies. Mm-hmm. So that's why we thought this is another way to do some capture some kind of research data from citizen scientists who are ready to share their data and help biomedical research. Yeah, so for,
0: since it's my circadian clock app, uh, is there uh, a section that captures data where you can enter it with respect to your light exposure, too? Because it seemed to me that would be an important part of the analysis.
1: Yeah, so we haven't integrated that into my circadian clock. We have another app called mylux. Recorder, oh, okay. word, mylux recorder, and it's only available from um, Apple. iOS Apple, uh, and that captures. That's actually a very nifty tool. So you can go anywhere and uh, point the, open the app, point the uh, mm-hmm. app uh, phone towards any light source or ambient light and record it, and you'll have a history of wherever you have been, and uh, it actually shows you in a map, and you can email yourself all the data. And it's a kind of nifty tool to for example, I know in uh Dallas Airport there are some terminals that are dimly lit and then there are other terminals that have very bright, nice light. And in Chicago, terminal yeah. <laughs> ORD is very yeah. nice, brightly lit during daytime and they actually dim down these days at night. Yeah. Whereas Atlanta has very bright light even at nighttime.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I just actually it's one of my favorite airports. I pretty much go through Atlanta pretty almost every yeah. month. Yeah, it's so symmetrical and contemporary. Yeah. But I didn't, I never really passing there through outside of sunset or sun, sun sunrise. So. Yeah. Uh, so I don't no, notice it because it's supposed to be
1: bright. <laughs> yeah, it is very bright. <laughs>
0: yeah. So does the, the, do these two apps integrate with each other?
1: No, they haven't integrated with each other because the light app we um, we developed it later on, and okay. it's really hard to integrate these two. But um, okay. hopefully, we can do that. Okay, good. But, but, yeah.
0: All right. So definitely, we'll put links to those. Uh, yeah. I'll send you the links. Yeah, that the <clears throat> light app's a little more restrictive, of course, because it's not an Android yet. But uh, yeah. But the my circadian clock is something that everyone should consider, and when a person participates in this. A research for 12 weeks, what is the benefit that they can anticipate to receive other than knowing that yeah. they've contributed to research?
1: Yeah. So what we typically see is uh, within two to three weeks, people begin to see improvement in their uh, sleep um, and also improvement in acid reflux or heartburn. Um, so, you know, there are 64 million people in this country who get a prescription for acid reflux or heartburn every year. 64
0: million. That's just
1: prescriptions, million. not even
0: over-the-counter, which used no, to be prescriptions.
1: This is only prescription. If you go to NIDDK website, it describes.
0: Wow. So, that's a 7th of the population now, maybe an 8th.
1: Uh, no, that's uh, 320 million is total, so it's one fifth almost. Yeah. One fifth, yeah. Oh, one fifth. That's crazy. Yeah and uh, then after between four and six weeks they will begin to see um, that daytime energy level is pretty high because that's the time when you get rid of the hunger pangs in Mm -hmm. evening and you're still feeling very healthy sleeping well and daytime you're feeling energetic then between 6 to 12 weeks uh, that's the time if you have any pre-diabetes or if you're blood glucose level is somewhere between 100 and 115, 120, uh, that's the time many people will see improvement in their fasting blood glucose level. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people who have mildly hypertensive, uh, maybe somewhere between 120 and 140 millimeter uh, systolic, uh, they might see uh, some drop, five to 10 millimeter uh, mercury drop in blood pressure. Then, actually, I had a list here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that happens is a lot of people have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. This is mostly for teenagers and college students. Uh, They go to the bathroom too many times. It's irritating for them. They might see an improvement in between 8 to 12 weeks um, because I think uh, what happens is the microbiome population improves, and also their gut repairs very well. And once the gut repair uh, improves, then systemic inflammation goes down. So by eight, between eight to 12 weeks, that's when a lot of people report that their joint pain goes down because that's a good sign of inflammation. And when joint chronic inflammation goes down, then the joint pain goes down. Then once in a while we get um, random reports, uh, for example, uh, some people who have inflammatory disease autoimmune disease they sometimes say the severity has gone down um, mm-hmm. even we have a few reports although this is all self-report anecdotal uh, multiple sclerosis we had at least a dozen people who reported that their severity went down mm-hmm. uh, for women what we have seen unless so there is some caveat some women want to do everything together so they will reduce calorie and time restrict, which is not a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if they're doing a healthy amount of food and healthy calorie and time restriction, then we often hear from young adults, young women, that their menstrual cycle improves. Um, it's more periodic. and. Um, so these are some of the things that they experience within that 12 weeks. And we cannot say what happens beyond 12 weeks. For example, since the chronic inflammation goes down, it might have better effect on the long-term heart health and cancer risk, et cetera. But those are not the things that, we, that they will feel within that 12 weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Now, one of the other things uh, working in the circadian rhythm is knowing when your optimal biological activities, especially from a mental perspective. And it's. Yeah. I, I think you put that range for most people about 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., I mean, if you want yeah. to get something done and really work yeah. on it. Like,
1: yeah, so that's uh, typically the optimal time between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. That's when our mental acuity is at its peak and executive function is also pretty high. So have your most important meetings, etc., during that interval
0: okay perfect well is there anything else you'd like to emphasize or uh, mention about uh, the circadian rhythm i mean we could talk for hours there's so much information (laughs) that we really really only touched on a few important items in the book i mean it's really enlightening there's a lot of great information thank you yeah because you go into so many different areas that are so crucial for your health.
1: yeah uh, what happens is at the end of it people get uh, might get overwhelmed but at the end of the day It's very simple. Try to be in bed somewhere between eight to nine hours, Mm -hmm. and after you, after waking up, uh, if you have time.
0: Well, let me just stop you there. So, give your body the opportunity to sleep. Yeah. And then, and this is one thing I didn't really fully appreciate, you know, because I just it's just this lack of understanding that most people aren't doing this stuff. I'm just literally shocked that people, ninety percent of people, don't eat within twelve hours. I mean, that's so basic, but there's also not exposing their eyes to this blue light. So getting an opportunity for nine hours, but then not having blue light after sunset. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's a daytime, at least get 30 minutes of daylight. You don't have Mm -hmm. to stare at the sun, even sitting next to a window or under shed is fine. Mm -hmm. And then eat somewhere between, say, eight Uh, to 10 hours.
0: Excuse me for interrupting there, but is that partially because we didn't talk about this, but The bright light exposure, and maybe you can mention the minimum amount of lumens that you need to do this, is a requirement for optimizing melatonin production. If you don't have that, even if you don't have the bright light at night or the blue light, you're not going to get as much melatonin if you don't have the bright light in the daytime. Is that right?
1: In the daytime, it has a different function. So daytime daytime bright light helps you to, if there is any residual melatonin in your system in the daytime, that will make you sleepy. Mm -hmm. And to reduce that, you need that bright light. Second Uh, is interesting okay bright light will also improve mood and that's now so that's independent of melatonin mm-hmm. uh, so m- bright light is the best antidepressant out there it's plentiful and free so just step outside for 30 minutes and then, well, unless you live in seattle <laughs> <laughs> One, so what is interesting is even on an overcast day in seattle really uh, there is still ten thousand locks of light outside. wow wow Ten thousand lux. So, okay. and in the sunny day in Florida, there is one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand lux. Wow. That's too much light. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm probably getting a, well over about one hundred fifty thousand most days of the week. So, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You think there is? So, you think that is successive? And do you think that it would be unwise to have that type of exposure for a long time?
1: Well, um, I mean, it's it's uh, good it's to have that part of it. No, the thing is, uh, I must say that we don't know everything about melanopsin or light reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there must be other function that happen only at very high intensity light, and that we don't understand yet. And, okay. Um, and then pick your eight to ten hours to eat, and maximum you can go up to twelve, but not beyond twelve. <laughs> okay. Uh, and dim Will down you- your light. Yeah. Okay. So
0: eight to 10 is your, you is from your analysis was your, your recommendation eight to 10.
1: What we do in our clinical studies is uh, we recommend to stick to 10 hours because we know a lot of people will have weekend stuff okay. and then they will go down to 12 and still they're okay. So that's okay. why we tell them. And yeah. is,
0: is this is what is confirmed in all the research data you've collected through your, your app?
1: So we have done 10 hours, there are uh, quite a few studies that have gone out to gone down to eight hours time restricted eating. Mm-hmm. And then there is one from um, Courtney Peterson in University of Alabama, Birmingham, she did a six hours time restricted eating. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there are various flavors of it. What we find is most palatable to most people is 10 hours because okay. uh, that's, one target they can work towards, and even with family life, they can still stay within 12. Between 10. Okay. That, that,
0: that is a really important pragmatic yeah. observation because you know, I, I like to go, I'm obsessive compulsive, and you know, I have the opportunity to do that because I don't have a family, a little bit of social interactions, and I can do, I can do, I could easily do six or even four, but you have to be pragmatic. You know, most people that's not possible. So, 10 is what you found is yeah. it's doable for most people, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really solid advice. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that's it. Did I, did I interrupt any others? (laughs) No, I think uh, we covered most of it.
1: Okay, (laughs) good.
0: good. Well, so the name of the book again is is the Circadian Code. The name of the app is the Circadian Clock or My Circadian Clock.
1: My Circadian
0: Clock. Yeah, all one word and you can get it on the App Store through iOS or Android and uh, download it there's no charge for it uh, and it'll help you out and continue to contribute to the research and pick up the book if you have any interest in this area, because i can promise you with a high degree of confidence you will not be disappointed it's written you have a very good writing style uh so it's easy to understand it's a pleasure to read some books are you know i just really i i struggle to get through them because it's just so hard not because of the technical complexity it's just that the writer is so poor but yours was really well written so congratulations thank you. yeah thank you so much.